you would now open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. If you are new to Manoa, we've been going through a preaching series called What Child Is This? And we've been going through the gospel according to Matthew. And we've repurposed the Advent lightings of these candles around Matthew's chapter 1 and 2 to look at who Jesus is as, yes, the Son of God. And we're going to hit that next week called the Candle of Divinity But we looked at the lineage of Jesus and how he's the son of Abraham the first week, the candle of blessing, we called that. Last week, Ron preached about how Jesus is the king of kings. We call that the candle of royalty. Well, here in Matthew chapter 2, I'm calling this the candle of humility as we see the journey of Jesus, the infant child Jesus, into his early childhood And so the Christmas journey from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth, some of, let's be honest, some of the less well-known or less well-told parts of the Christmas story, and yet very much embed in Matthew's gospel, and Luke is the other gospel where we get the birth narrative. So I'm going to be going through the entire chapter of Matthew 2, but just to get us started, I want to reread some of what Ron did with the visit of the wise men, all the way from verses 1 through verse 12, and then we'll pray and jump into today's sermon, The Christmas Journey, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen went when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for your perfect, holy, and sacred word. Lord, we thank you for this miraculous birth that has been recorded in the pages of Scripture so that we would forever know that, Emmanuel, you are God with us, that, Jesus, you are the Lord who saves. And as we look at the journey of Matthew chapter 2, preserved in sacred Scripture this morning, we pray, I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to see the Christmas story afresh, to see the depths that you descended to save us, to see the heights of what you left from heaven to come into this broken world to save 
broken, sinful people. And so God, I pray that as we look at your journey, the true Christmas journey, Lord, that our hearts would be inspired afresh to love you and to worship you and to seek you like these wise men. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my father-in-law has been turning my wife onto the Hallmark Christmas movies recently. He's been watching them for a while, and, uh, and he loves the Hallmark Christmas movies. In the midst of all the tension in this world, all the political drama in this world, there's nothing like just flicking on the Hallmark Christmas movies. And as we watched them, I watched one with my wife the other day. It was very heartwarming. Have any of you guys watched some of these before? I see a few. Be honest. Come on. Don't be ashamed. <laughs> all the ladies are raising their hands. Guys are like, no. <laughs> We love these, right? Because they're family-friendly, feel good. They're always in a small town. They're faith-filled, faith-positive. They always have a happy ending. There's zero turmoil or zero tension in these movies. You just, they just warm your heart, these Hallmark Christmas journeys, if you will. There's a familiar pattern in them that if you've seen one, you've kind of seen them all. Well, I find it intriguing by way of a contrast. In Matthew chapter 2, we often like to end the Christmas journey, if you will, with the wise men kneeling before Jesus with their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we do a big hallelujah, and we mash it together with Luke's gospel and the angels and the shepherds and kind of fix it into a 24-hour period, if you will, in this big culmination and climax. And yet, as we're going to see with the wise men in Herod today, This launches Jesus on a Christmas journey that looks nothing like our Hallmark Christmas channel. It is filled with political turmoil. It is filled with with pressures. It is filled with, sadly, death, as we'll see, innocent people dying. And yet this is part of the true Christmas story. And many of the details, let's be clear, could have that we want to know. There's so much more I want to know have not been preserved, but by the Holy Spirit, this is the story that God has preserved for us. And there's a reason, there's a purpose, and as I've called this candle the candle of humility, because Jesus not, didn't simply humble himself on the cross, though certainly he did that. His entire incarnation coming into this world was a rescue mission, and it was not safe at all from the very beginning of his life. There is a hunt for the destruction of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see on this Christmas journey. And it is a saga of over 200 miles of traveling in an era without cars, without trains, without planes. Mary and Joseph starting in Nazareth, working their way to Bethlehem, and as we'll see, to Egypt and back to Nazareth again. And so Jesus Christ, in this Christmas journey, he humbles himself. We're going to see the humility of our Savior on great display. And if you're taking notes, there's three humbling stops on the Christmas journey that I want to draw our attention to out of Matthew chapter 2. The first humbling stop on the Christmas journey is what we just read about, which is Bethlehem itself. And I'm calling this point The humbling stop on the Christmas journey is firstly the last class birthplace. The last class birthplace. 
Now, if you only read Matthew's account and not pulling in Luke's, you might say, what are you talking about, Stefan? I mean, here's Jesus. He's getting gold. He's getting frankincense. He's getting myrrh. He has three kings seeking him and bowing before him. I think that's kind of a first-class birthplace, if you tell me. But embedded in the story, there's a few things you need to see before we fix our eyes on the gold that are given to the child Jesus. First up, remember that these wise men did not beeline it straight to Bethlehem. Now they followed the star from the east, uh, probably over a thousand miles. And uh, there's a lot of mystery about these, these kings and where they came from. You can look into church history and study them. But they don't go directly to Bethlehem. They have enough prophecy to know that this would allude to the Christ, the king, the king of the Jews. But they go to the place you would think the king would be. They go to Jerusalem, right? And they go to the palace of Herod, who is the king. Because their assumption is, if the king of the Jews has been born, he's going to be born with pomp. He's going to be born in wealth. He's going to be born in a palace. And so they go to Herod, and they say, where is he? We saw the star. Where is the king? And Herod says, I don't know what you guys are talking about. So he pulls all the influential people, the educated people, the scribes in and so forth, and they pull out their prophecy of Micah, etc. And they say, well, Bethlehem. Because in your Bibles, if you've ever heard of the city of David, there are two cities called the city of David. And that's sometimes why it's confusing. Jerusalem is the city of David because that's where David set up the, uh, the kingdom. He set up the castle, if you will, there, his palace there. That's where the temple or the tabernacle, Solomon built it there. So that's called the city of David. But so is Bethlehem, which is about five or six miles away from Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because that's where David was born. So city of David, they go to the city of David, but that's not the origin of the Christ child. They have to go to the original city of David, where David, that humble shepherd boy, was born. That city in Bethlehem, which is explicitly what the prophecy says. And Herod concocts this plan. He says, when you come, come back so I can worship this child. And as we'll see, he has no intention of worshiping this child. He's looking to destroy this child. And so they follow the star, and it leads them. This is probably a year or two after Jesus has been born. So Mary and Joseph have traveled from Nazareth. An angel appeared to her in a dream. You'll remember that, the angel Gabriel. That's from Luke's gospel. and tells her that she will conceive the Son of God. And she says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And there... As she's at full term, a census comes, and so now they have to travel to Joseph and her hometown, which is Bethlehem, the place of their origins, which pulls them prophetically right smack dab into fulfilling God's perfect plan, because that's where the Christ child was to be born. But she is so full term that by the time they arrive, you guys know the story, there is a bunch of people there for the census, and there's no room for her, no room for Joseph, no room for this child to be born. As she's going into labor, they finally find, and we say there's no place in the inn. We don't fully know if there was like a hotel. The inn could have been a guest room. There's church history that says it might have been a cave. Either way, we know this. This is where the animals dwell because Jesus is born in a manger which is a feeding trough. 
the son of God. The angel appears and says, you will give birth to the son of God. Early he says, his name shall be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And here they are traveling many, many miles as a number, a small, insignificant number that doesn't even have a place to land when they arrive there. They travel from their hometown of Nazareth 80 miles to Bethlehem and give birth to Jesus in a feeding trough because there's no room for the Son of God. The first humbling stop on the Christmas journey It's not what you would expect. If I were God thinking I'm going to write my glory into the story, some of us might be tempted to think we would write ourselves right into the palace. But Jesus, when he writes himself into the story, he goes back to the origin, the place where the shepherd boy David came from, the place where the good shepherd Jesus will now come from, and he places himself in a feeding trough wrapped in swaddling claws lying in that manger. The humility of God on display to enter into our broken world. Fulfilling prophecy, yes, but the fact that he wrote the story this way and then clearly Mary and Joseph remained in Bethlehem for a year or two, which is where the wise men find the child Christ and give him these gifts. The second humbling stop on the Christmas journey now leads us to a near-death asylum. So not only a last-class birthplace in a feeding trough outside of the palace, but a near-death asylum, verses 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, that's referring to the wise men, these three kings, when they had left, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared. Now keep in mind verse 12 that they departed a different way because they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So the Lord spoke to them through a dream and said, don't go back. So they departed. And an angel of the Lord then also appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time when he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. The second humbling stop on this Christmas journey, this Christmas rescue mission, is a near-death asylum in Egypt. Now, the flight to Egypt was about 40 miles from Bethlehem. They fled in the, the cover of night for fear of Herod and his fury and rage. And as both the wise men were clearly warned by the Lord in a dream, and they are warned, 
This is a legitimate threat as we are shown in verses 16 through 18. Herod is on a rampage to make sure that he remains in power, that he is king, and this king of the Jews will not displace his power. And so once he finds out that he has been tricked, we see this massacre of the infants, it's been called, or the massacre of the innocents. And for three years, Jesus is an exile, a refugee with his parents, according to church history. An extra-biblical revelation, or extra-biblical knowledge, I should say, uh, in Egypt. So likely Jesus from ages 1 to 2 is in Bethlehem. Then from ages 2 on to about age 5, he's growing up in Egypt as a refugee, an exile in his own country, from his own country, because of the political unrest seeking to destroy him. And we talk about what child is this, because again, we're quick to run to the prophecies about saying he's a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, etc. And those are all true, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. But there are other things that Matthew now draws our attention to here, where he said he was the son of David, where he said that he was the son of Abraham. Here he says things like, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And you say, what is this referring to? Out of all the prophecies you're talking about, out of Egypt, I have called my son? Referring to the prophecy of Jeremiah of weeping and lamentation? Well, here is what is happening. By the way, out of Egypt I've called my son is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. You can look it up later. But it begins with the following. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And you might go back there, and sometimes you see the apostles, or you see the New Testament authors quoting their Old Testaments, and you go back to the pages, and you say, Wait a second. That was about Israel. You said that this was about Jesus. How does that work? Because if it's about Israel, can it really also be about Jesus? And as you get to understand how the New Testament authors, inspired by the Spirit, applied their Old Testament, what you need to see is that it's not always simply, hey, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But they're also taking note of patterns. They're taking notes of patterns in the Old Testament that are replayed in the life and the ministry of Jesus and saying, Jesus is now replaying our history over again. So just as Israel went into exile, if you will, they went into Egypt when they were about to starve and they were protected there, and then God called them out of Egypt, now Jesus is the new Israel that is protected in Egypt, and he comes out of Egypt as a deliverer. And just as Moses, for example, all the massacre of the children, do you remember that, under Pharaoh? And this one child was delivered. In the Nile, Moses is brought out, and now he becomes the deliverer. They're drawing attention to that and saying, Jesus was saved from this massacre, and now Jesus emerges as the Savior. This pattern over and over and over again, and by the way, this is not simply humans. Systems replaying. We see in the book of Revelation, John inspired by the Holy Spirit, he draws back the curtain Check this out later, Revelation 12, where this cosmic battle with the dragon and the woman 
And the woman is pregnant, and she's giving birth to the promised child, the promised deliverer, if you will. And this serpent, this great beast, this devil, Satan, is always on the hunt to kill the woman and to kill the child and to destroy him, to make war against the child and against her descendants, against her offspring. And people have speculated, what is, who is she? Is she Mary? Is she the church? Is she Israel? You're going to get frustrated with me because this is what I always say. Yes. Yes, because this is what the devil has always been doing. This is his game plan. And now Mary gets to relive literally that story, giving birth to the new Israel, the Moses, if you will, the new one to come. But this is his MO. He is always seeking to destroy God's people, to hunt them down. And if the promised Christ child is to be born, Herod, driven like a dragon-like fury, is fueled by the enemy of our souls himself, the serpent of the world that slid in and tempted us is driving his behavior. And so Jesus goes into Egypt for protection and he is saved there and he comes out the savior of the world and the serpent crusher in the end. Can I get a hallelujah? Do you see what Matthew wants us to see? It is incredible what he is drawing our attention, eyes and our attention to here. That Jesus has been hidden away in Egypt and comes out of Egypt to rescue God's people once again. Three humbling stops on the Christmas journey. We see his last class birthplace in Bethlehem where his parents travel 80 miles to give birth to him in a manger. We see a near-death asylum where Jesus is hunted down for his life, but protected. Thirdly, and finally, the finally, final humbling step on the Christmas journey, we see a no-good hometown. Calling it the no-good hometown, verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was fulfilled by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So we see Jesus is the child of Abraham, the child of David. We see he is the son of Egypt. And here we're told that he will be a Nazarene. He is the child or the son of Nazareth. Now, if you flip to your Old Testament and look for the prophets who say he will be called a Nazarene, you will be flipping for a long time. Because you say there is no verse in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. And theologians and commentators have scratched their heads for centuries, millennia now. It's like, what is he referring to? Now, I've studied this a while, and this is where I believe he is landing. If you take a different position, that's fine. We can talk about it later. But he says the prophets. He's not referring to a specific scripture here. Do you see that? 
He's saying there is a pattern for this one who will be born out of Nazareth. He will be called a Nazarene because in that day, to be called a Nazarene is basically almost a pejorative. It is to be from the wrong side of the train tracks. When Jesus emerges in the gospel according to Matthew and they say, we found him, we found the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the first response isn't hallelujah. The first response was, does anything good come out of Nazareth? Later on, when Nicodemus stands up for Jesus before all the religious leaders and says, whoa, do we, do we try somebody without hearing their case first? They say, who are you? Go study the Bible again. Does any prophet come out of Galilee? And Jesus, even in his own hometown, doing all these miracles everywhere, then he says, the prophet's without honor, except in his own hometown. That the picture of the Christ, though he is a conquering hero, is also of a suffering servant who was despised, rejected, We esteemed him not. None of that would have been fulfilled if Jesus was born in the palace in Herod's household in Jerusalem. That's what we want, isn't it? We want power. We want wealth. We want the castle. We want to see that when God writes himself into the story, he puts himself in the wrong zip code. If that's on your resume, you're not getting a call back. Why? How would God do that? We see the condescension of the Son of God, the Savior, that as he came into this, let's be honest here, this is a a very perilous journey for Jesus. Yes, God is sovereign, but there is a real destruction after this child that Jesus has to live through, that Mary and Joseph lived through. And God writes himself as the Savior of the world. The angel said, call him Jesus. Why? The Lord says he will save his people from their sins. Next week, we'll look at the candle of divinity, that he's Emmanuel, God with us. God writes himself into the story. And he writes himself into a feeding trough, on the run, hunted for his life, and growing up in poverty and obscurity, a carpenter's son. The good news of Christmas, brothers and sisters, I love the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. I love the angels declaring. I'm not so sure about the halo over the infant child, but (laughs) he was holy, don't get me wrong, but But the good news of the Christmas story is the condescension of God. That he came down to us and he entered into suffering. And his suffering didn't simply start at the cross. It culminated there. That God, Philippians chapter 2 said, who was in the form of God made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. And if this Christmas you are feeling weak and powerless, if this year you are feeling like you can't get ahead in life, if this year you're feeling under attack or threatened, let me tell you this with all sincerity and all theological precision, God gets it. Because that's exactly the story he wrote himself into for you and for me. 
God who is strong became weak for you to give you his strength. God who is rich for you became poor for you to give you his wealth. God divested himself of all glory so that he might exalt and glorify you. The great reversal has begun in the Christmas story. And it's not a Hallmark Christmas story. It's not all warm and fuzzy. But let me tell you this, brothers and sisters, it does have a happy ending. Amen? It has turmoil in it. It has strife in it. But Jesus, the sufferer, the one who condescends, raises with all authority in his right hand. And when Jesus comes back, that is when the kingdom that we all long for will be perfected. But the way, amen, go ahead. Amen. But the way that you enter into that story, the Christmas story of Jesus converges with your story. And like those kings, you come and you bow before him. Because there's a Herod in each one of us. There's a dragon that still is at work in this world, a serpent that would want to tempt your soul to say, I want him out of here because he's a threat. But the Christmas story where we find our salvation converging with Jesus is where the Savior who was saved from Egypt now comes to save you. The deliverer who came out of Egypt now comes to deliver you. And you cast your lot on him. And the way to glory is the same path of the Christmas story. We descend into humility. And God is the one who exalts us. We embrace this Christ child. We embrace this Savior. We embrace this crucified one. What child is this who came to rest? Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross be born. For me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Let's pray. Please stand. Man of sorrows, what a name. He shall be called a Nazarene. Out of Egypt I have called my son. If you have not trusted in the son of God, in the son of Egypt, in the son of Nazareth, in the Nazarene, one of the early titles and pejorative titles for Christians was they are Nazarenes. And if you haven't become Nazarene yet, if you haven't come to the son of Nazareth, if you haven't placed your faith and confidence in the Savior, today is the day of salvation. The word of God says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus was given the name Jesus precisely because it means the Lord saves. He is the Savior. And if you'd like to receive him, he's available to you now. Pray something like this. Say, Jesus, thank you for your humility. Thank you that when you wrote yourself into my story, you condescended to come to lift me up from my broken place. 
Thank you that you get my brokenness and you see the wickedness of the world and you see the wickedness of myself and you don't reject me, but you love me anyway. Thank you that your love conquers over my evil. Today, I reject the serpent. I reject the heart of Herod and I embrace the heart of these kings and I bow before you. I throw all of my worldly wealth at your feet. I throw all of my sin at your feet and I trade them for the glory of forgiveness, for the glory of salvation, and for the glory of eternal life. And Father, for the church, I pray, God, that we would be known as men and women of the Christmas story, that our journey to, be, to glory would be marked by a path into humility. That Jesus, that through your incarnation, you not only put on flesh, but you also modeled for us a divesting of authority and power and strength that we're now called to follow. So God, make us a church that relives that Christmas story, that wins the lost through that Christmas story. And though we never replace you and though we never incarnate the divine nature, Lord, we are filled with your spirit and we are called to live as those who are humble seeing others lifted up as we lay ourselves down. Make us that kind of church, I pray, that we might be called Nazarenes like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.